Both the quantity of opioids being prescribed in the United States and the number of overdose deaths involving both prescription and illicit opioids have skyrocketed since 2000. Recently, the U.S. Surgeon General called on clinicians to help address the opioid epidemic and released the first Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. Dr. Murthy has written a perspective article about the role of clinicians in combating the opioid epidemic. Dr. Murthy, you write in your article that the letter you sent to more than 2 million doctors, nurses, dentists, other clinicians was the first such letter ever issued by a U.S. Surgeon General. What do you think's allowed the opioid epidemic to rise to the level it has in the United States? And what makes this the right time to call for action, as you've done? Well, Steve, the opioid crisis is really the true public health crisis that has grown rapidly. And what we've seen is that over the last few decades, we really got here on a path that was paved with good intentions. 20 to 30 years ago, clinicians were urged to treat pain more aggressively, but they were urged to do so recognizing that we undertreated pain, but without giving them necessarily the training, the tools they needed to treat pain safely and effectively. And this coincided with heavy marketing of opioid medications by pharmaceutical companies to doctors, as well as a lack of treatment options that we had for those who did, in fact, develop issues around addiction. And all of this was on a background of unfortunate stigma that we unfortunately find substance use disorders at large uh, enmeshed in. There are many people who are living right now with opioid use disorders who don't feel comfortable coming forward and asking for help. And so these negative attitudes combined with a lack of training and tools for clinicians, along with marketing, these medications all combined to give us the crisis that we have today. What's been the response from providers to your letter and the subsequent report? Well, the response has been positive, and I'm very grateful for that. We've received not only good feedback, but also helpful suggestions from clinicians around the country who have seen different facets of this epidemic and are looking to address it in their own ways. One of the things that we heard clearly was that while people had been reading about the opioid epidemic in the news, folks didn't often recognize the full extent of this crisis. They didn't know, for example, that this is in fact now driving the use of heroin, the misuse that is prescription opioids. Many also did not realize that this is contributing to the spread of HIV and hepatitis C and that the number of people who die from drug overdoses in our country now exceeds the number of people who die from motor vehicle accidents. So the scale and the rapidity with which this epidemic has progressed, I know was news to some of our clinician colleagues, but what was also news to some of them was the connection between our prescribing practices and the epidemic. Now, my strong belief is that clinicians, when they approach a patient with pain, they're prescribing opioids, they're doing so because, generally speaking, they want to relieve suffering, and they want to a patient's quality of life. And I remember from my own time in the hospital that that was my intention as well when I prescribed opioids. But even when I was in training, I remember being taught, in fact, that opioid medications were not addictive so long as they were given to someone who had, quote-unquote, legitimate pain. We know now that that is not the case, but that, to me, emphasizes that we have a lot more work to do when it comes to education. That's part of the reason why we issued this letter. But I'm also convinced that the only way we are going to successfully address the opioid crisis in America as if clinicians are part of the solution and if they're helping to lead the effort, both through their prescribing practices, by connecting patients to treatment, and by helping our country change how it thinks about addiction so we see it as a chronic illness and not as a character flaw. So looking at how clinicians can sharpen their prescribing practices, what specific strategies can providers use to ensure that they're treating pain adequately but they're not writing unnecessary prescriptions that might support addiction? Well, it's a great question. You know, to assist in the safe and effective treatment of pain. We actually included a pocket card for clinicians 
that's based on the CDC prescriber guidelines. And there are a few steps that we ask clinicians to take in that pocket card. Number one is to assess pain and function using a validated pain scale. An example is a PEG scale where the score is an average of three individual question scores. The second thing that we ask clinicians to do is to consider if non-opioid therapies are appropriate before you actually prescribe an opioid. And here, there's some education that we have to do for ourselves about what those non-opioid therapies are. We know that in addition to NSAIDs, that TCAs, that certain anticonvulsant medications, as well as non-medication-based approaches like exercise, physical therapy, and cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful when it comes to addressing pain. Then the third thing we ask clinicians to do is to talk to patients about their treatment plan and about opioids specifically. Many of us have recognized in our own care for patients that when it came to antibiotics, that there are often important conversations we have to have there about the benefits, but is also about the risks of antibiotics. The same is true when it comes to opioids. Here, it's important that clinicians talk to patients about the risks and benefits of opioids and help them recognize that these are, in fact, addictive substances. But one point I want to be very clear on is that we cannot allow the pendulum to swing to the other extreme here, where we deny people who need opioid medications those actual medications. We know that the pendulum swung too far to one extreme several decades ago when we were over-prescribing opioid medications, and we are trying to find an appropriate middle ground. So if you do, in fact, have to prescribe opioids for a patient, there, too, it's important to help inform them about how to care for those opioids, informing them that locking up those medications in a safe place where people can get them is very important because we know kids in particular can get into the medicine cabinet, as can visitors, and take supplies of opioids and end up misusing them, and that is one of the most common paths through which people end up developing an opioid use disorder. So looking at treatment for those who are addicted, you write in your article that evidence-based therapies are available, but that more than a million people who need that treatment lack access to it. So what can be done to address those access issues? We are experiencing a very important gap in treatment. We do have over a million people in America who have an opioid use disorder but cannot get treatment. We have to close that gap because we do, in fact, have treatments that are evidence-based and that are proven to work. And so there are several steps that we have to take to close the treatment gap. Number one is we have to fund treatment. And historically, we have underfunded treatment. But I'm happy to say in the last few years, under the leadership of President Obama, we've actually had much more investment on the treatment side. Just recently, just days ago, in fact, the House and the Senate passed the Cures Bill, which went to the president for signature, which includes now $1 billion in additional funds to address the opioid epidemic, substantial amount of that going toward treatment. So funding is one important component of it. But another component is training the clinicians and staff that will be able to deliver that treatment. As I've traveled around the country, I've heard from folks that are having a hard time recruiting people with the right skill set to staff the treatment centers. And so this is a place where the medical and health professions can help in training more folks to, to actually fill those roles, and not just the role of an addiction specialist, but also ensuring that primary care clinicians have in their toolbox strategies and skills for how to diagnose and treat substance use disorders. And the last piece that we should keep in mind is that even if we have readily available treatment centers and trained, skilled professionals to provide that treatment, it's also important that people come forward and seek the help that they need. And right now, we know that the negative attitudes around addiction are preventing many people from coming forth and asking for help. When I have traveled to different communities to talk about the opioid epidemic, I have many people who will approach me and say, I'm only willing to talk to you if there are no cameras around, because they're worried that if someone finds out they have a substance use disorder, that they'll be ostracized by their neighbors, that they may be fired from their job, and they may even be looked at differently by their doctor. These are their concerns. 
until we help to change that cultural piece, how we think about and see addiction as a country, it's going to be hard for people to come forward and ask for help. So final question, building off that, how do we change how society looks at addiction? How can individual physicians promote the view of addiction as a chronic disease rather than a personal failing? Well, clinicians have powerful roles to play in delivering care, and we have known that forever. But what I think many physicians underestimate is the powerful role they play in shaping how our country thinks about health issues, and in particular, how their patients and their communities think about health issues. And this is a time where it is more important than ever for clinicians to step up and play the role not only of caregiver, but also of educator and community leader. And here, clinicians can start by having conversations with their patient about substance use disorders, helping them understand that these are, in fact, chronic diseases, that they are not conditions to be ashamed of. And by asking the question, we can open a conversation in a very powerful way and give people permission to share. And many people don't have that permission right now. But we can also go beyond the conversations we have with individual patients to speaking to our communities at large. If you are in a hospital or in a clinic setting, you can ensure that your colleagues understand the depth of this crisis, but also how we should be approaching addiction as a chronic illness. We laid out the rationale for treating substance use disorders as a chronic illness in the recent Surgeon General's report on drugs and alcohol that I released in November 2016. And in there, we detailed specifically how addiction impacts the brain circuits in three key areas of the brain, the basal ganglia, the frontal lobe, and the pre-amygdala, areas which help to control impulses and govern decision-making, as well as our stress and reward systems. And these help explain why it is that people with substance use disorders have a difficult time when it comes to making decisions that may seem obvious or rational to other folks. So we can go beyond our conversations with patients, ensuring that our colleagues in our work settings are also understanding the depth of this crisis and how to approach substance use disorders. But finally, I want to emphasize that clinicians have a voice and an opportunity to lead that goes even outside their clinical settings. I often wish that we had more clinicians who were writing letters to the editor and op-eds who were speaking on the radio and in the news about health issues. We live in a time where the truth is under attack and where science in some cases is under attack. And we need people who are trained in science, who are respected because of the commitment they made to care for patients, to speak up on behalf of science and behalf of the truth. And they have to do so in the public square. And so we need to encourage clinicians at all stages of their practice, whether they're a first-year medical student or whether they're a senior clinician, to share their experiences with patients, with their colleagues, and with the larger community, particularly through media. If we have the voices of clinicians front and center in addressing this crisis, then I feel that our chances of being successful are dramatically higher. Thank you, Dr. Murthy.